This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Happy weekend. Another great political week just passed. Another one coming up. Don't forget uh, to reassess how the debate went on Friday night between Gretchen Whitmer and Bill Schuette for the governorship. The first of two debates, one uh, last night, Friday, October 12th, and there's going to be another one on October 24th. So, uh, we'll see where the race is at that point. At this time, I'll just mention that an eighth poll by my count in the last two and a half weeks came out this week from Mitchell research and communications. And this one has it, uh, back to an eight point race, uh, Gretchen Whitmer over Bill Schuette. I think it was, um, 50, excuse me, 46 to 38%. Uh, and surprisingly, uh, John James doing better against Debbie Stabenow, only nine points behind 51% for Debbie Stabenow, 42% for John James. I'll just say that John James reported raising $3.6 million in the third quarter of this year, ending on September 30th. And that was twice as much as Debbie Stabenow raised in the same period, she raised 1.8 million, but she has an enormous amount of money, uh, cash on hand left over that she's been accumulating for the last couple of years. I mean, total right now, I just have to guess that she's probably got 15, 16 million raised altogether. And John James spent, uh, 5 million in the primary that he raised in the primary to beat Sandy Penzler and get the nomination. Then he was pretty much wiped out. So he's kind of starting from scratch. Now he's raising money at an impressive rate, uh, and outdid Stabenow in the third quarter, but she's still got a big cash edge and she's announced she's going to be, uh, spending over $3 million on advertising in the next four weeks. Um, this Mitchell poll also showed that the, uh, attorney general's race is really a dead heat at this point. Dana Nessel, 34%, um, Tom Leonard, the speaker of the house, uh, running for attorney general, 33%, 34 to 33% with a lot undecided over, uh, 30% undecided. So this race is really up for grabs. It's the only one that really seems to be close in all the polling we've seen on all the big statewide races, governor, U S Senate, uh, attorney general and secretary of state. Last week, I started out talking about a pundit poll that had been taken, uh, several weeks back. In fact, now it's nearly a month old by Resh strategies and dental research of what you'd call inside the capital bubble people. Uh, these are lobbyists, legislative staffers, political junkies, uh, political race forecasters, political consultants. And, uh, it's not a very big sample, but a uh, pretty definitive result. Uh, just asking the question of these people, not 
who they prefer or who they like, who they're going to vote for, but who do they think is going to win? Really kind of an astounding edge here at that point. And this was, again, back on September 19th and 20th, 86% thought Gretchen Whitmer is going to be elected governor. Only 8% thought Bill Schuette and uh, 6% undecided. And then for Secretary of State, it was 88% thought Jocelyn Benson, the Democratic candidate, would win. 8% Mary Trader Lang, the Republican, would win. Um, In the uh, Attorney General's race, again, uh, close, and this was nearly a month ago, Dana Nessel over Tom Leonard among the pundits in the Capitol. Who do you think is going to win? It was only 42 to 38. And since then, I think polls have shown that the voters of Michigan have narrowed the margin between Nestle and Leonard to pretty much a dead heat. Also, uh, one other thing came out this week I thought was interesting. Uh, I got a piece of literature in the mail from uh, two candidates for the state Supreme Court, uh, both nominated by the Republican Party, the incumbents, uh, Curtis Wilder, no surprise there, and Elizabeth Clement. Now, you may remember there was a big story about three weeks ago about uh, Republicans sending out literature of their statewide candidates. And this is not just uh, for Supreme Court. It's for all the education boards. It's for governor. It's for U.S. Senate, Secretary of State, Attorney General. But it left Beth Clement, Elizabeth Clement, off the literature. And there was a lot of controversy and debate about that. Uh, Some people in the Republican Party very unhappy with Elizabeth Clement, who was appointed to the Supreme Court by Governor Rick Snyder uh, at the beginning of the year to fill a vacancy. She's never been on a statewide ballot before. She's never been on any ballot before. And she uh, issued a couple of opinions, uh, decisions as part of the court. Uh, this spring and early this summer, which uh, the Republican Party was not happy about. She sided with two Democrats on the court and another Republican justice. And so she was pretty much ignored and disrespected at the Republican State Convention in late August. Uh, And then they left her off this piece of literature that went out about three weeks ago. But now uh, there's this literature piece that the Republican Party just put out hitting mailboxes. I got one, um, where she is prominently displayed her picture and blazing color along with Curtis Wilder. Uh, in fact, the two justice candidates really, uh, dominate this piece. Uh, it lists other people on the Republican ticket running, but it's really about the justices. So I think that's an important thing to look at. Um, this race, uh, again, uh, I should say races, uh, with not that much time left. We're coming up on November 6th and you're going to start to see some predictions on uh, what the turnout is likely to be. We talked about it several weeks ago. We had several experts and we're going to have one later on today who think or thought it was going to be a big turnout, uh, 4 million voters, perhaps 4.2 million. Uh, question is whether it will be that big, uh, supposedly, uh, from what I've seen, the absentee voter requests and the voter, the absentee, uh, ballots that have been turned in so far, it looks more like on par with 2014, 
than it does some huge, uh, massive turnout. But we'll talk to our guests about that in a few minutes. Uh, remember the ballot proposals, uh, one, two, and three, one recreational marijuana two the voters, not politicians proposal and three, the promote the vote proposal. All three of those proposals look like they're probably going to pass. Most of the polls have them either with majority support or plurality support, but a couple of them have support levels below 50% with a lot of undecided voters. And there's still a lot of active campaigning going on out there. So we'll ask our guests in a few minutes uh, what they think about ballot wording. You know, it's very hard to poll a ballot question because you can talk about it generically, uh, describe it to voters, and then that's not what the voter sees when he or she goes into the voting booth on November 6th. There's actual wording that has to be uh, drawn up and fleshed out by the elections division of the secretary of state's office, no more than a hundred words describing the ballot proposal. And very often uh, when people see that ballot wording, they change their mind from what they thought they might support or not support going into the election. So we'll talk about that in a few minutes. We're going to take a break. That's where things stand right now with uh, way less than a month left before the election. Uh, It's coming up fast, folks. Get ready. I'll be back in a minute or two. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back and we got a special guest here, uh, Bill Jeleno, William Jeleno, the uh, Libertarian Party candidate for governor. Uh, the Libertarians attained major party status this year because of the showing of Gary Johnson uh, for the presidency in 2016 in Michigan. And uh, Bill Jeleno actually had a Republican, uh, excuse me, a Libertarian uh, primary opponent on August 7th, John Tater. Uh, they squared off. They were on the ballot. It's the first time the Libertarians have ever been on a statewide ballot. I think, unless you can correct me, maybe way back in the day you were on briefly. And uh, uh, Bill Jeleno came out on top, and uh, I just wanted to ask you, first of all, Bill Jeleno, welcome uh, to the Political Insider. And Thank you uh, to be here. Yeah, and let me ask you, do you feel uh, you're, you're being able to or will be able to take advantage of your major party ballot status that you've got this year? Well, that's that's certainly the goal. I mean, uh, you know, we we realize there's always an outside chance. You know, you never say never. Um, you know, that we're going to make even more lightning. But you know, certainly one of the goals is to maintain our major party status. It's something that in six previous tries, no party that came this far has ever gotten that done. And so, um, it's well within our sights. We're we're seeing even in the polls, we're within the margin of error of having that opportunity. Um, which would be an outstanding uh, achievement unto itself. 
how many votes would you have to get in November, uh, or what percentage of the vote do you have to get to retain major party status going into 2020? Well, that's going to be calculated off the Secretary of State's race. Um, they take all the votes that are uh, accumulated in that particular race, and then it's 5% of that is the number that any uh, lead candidate, which is, is what the governor's race is this year, uh, has to obtain to stay on the ballot as a major party. Um, you know, the last party that uh, had that opportunity was back, the Reform Party back in 1996 qualified, and then in 98 they didn't even run anyone for, for governor. And uh, so it's something that in in six previous tries it's never been accomplished. And so, uh, we're, so we know we're fighting history, but we think we can get it done. Yeah, well, uh, the governor obviously is the lead candidate. You're the lead candidate for the Libertarians, but let's say attorney general. I think there's a libertarian candidate for attorney general this year, right? There is. And and let's say one of the other statewide candidates for the libertarians uh, gets, you know, the 5% of the secretary of state vote. Uh, would that enable the party to qualify just as easily as the governor's race? Or does it actually have to be the governor candidate who gets 5%? Yeah, it, it's called the top of ticket rule. And, and you know, the, the Democrats and Republicans have written this very carefully. They understand that that race is, is uh, generally much more competitive. And, um, and it does make it very difficult for minor parties who have qualified as a major party to then qualify again. And uh, so, no, it's on me. And, our, and Angelique and I, as the, the nominees of the governor and lieutenant governor, it's on us to get that 5%. So um, that's where the effort... And and where the emphasis is being made. Okay, tell us a little bit about Angelique, the lieutenant governor candidate. I'm not sure a lot of people really know who she is. Uh, can you give us a little bit about her background, and what is she doing during the campaign to supplement your efforts? Sure. Well, well, one thing um, is um, she represents a lot of uh, other parts of the party in the sense that, you know, I'm over here on the west side of the state. Um, you know, she lives in Auburn Hills. Um, she manages a she's a co-owner of a manufacturing entity there and is an attorney and uh, handles all their compliance and all those kinds of issues uh, prior to uh, this business um, you know, she practiced criminal law and she uh, uh, worked with the indigent poor she has um, a, a story of her own uh, her mother is an immigrant from the Philippines and uh, a, a citizen now and uh, so she represents a lot of balance between what each of us bring to the, to the race. And um, she's a, a great intellectual counterpoint. We're able to work on things together in, in terms of our developing our policies that we want to present. Um, and so it's been a really great collaboration. Um, she's done a lot of radio programs and, and other things, um, supplementing what I do. And, you know, we've done some joint appearances that have made some... Uh, some good media as well. Yeah. What, uh, again, for our listeners, what are you making the major issues in your campaign? I mean, what are you talking about, particularly with your uh, individual approach, Bill Jeleno, as the gubernatorial nominee of the Libertarians? I mean, as I understand it, you basically said we've got to be practical and pragmatic as Libertarians and not be so purist in our approach uh, to issues. And we've got to concentrate on how do we get things done uh, if well, we were in a position to govern. Yeah, and I think governing is the important word. Um, you know, I, I try to use the Libertarian concepts to inform what our decisions are. 
Um, I've never pledged myself to be the most pure libertarian in the world. Um, you know, my goal is to present those ideas to the public and show that we have the capability to surround ourselves with the kind of people that are going to help us run the state in an appropriate way if given that opportunity. And so, you know, we've said that uh, we anticipate that Proposal 1 is going to pass, and when it does... I'd like to make that real by taking a lot of the people who are in prison on nonviolent drug offenses and, and move them out of there, get them back into society. Uh, some of those people may need additional support in terms of, um, you know, mental health counseling or, uh, you know, addiction counseling. But at the end of the day, um, I've made it a point that we need to reduce our prison population. And of course, this is not just me. This, there's a lot of intellectuals who have said, you know, Michigan has about 30% more people in prison than our surrounding states. And so that's been a real emphasis, and I think there's some money available there and in some other areas where I think there's corporate largesse. Um, and in doing so, we're able to move that money to solve real problems. And so that kind of practical view of things is something that we think is really important. And then lastly, I think we wanted to stand up, uh, particularly uh, we've called ourselves sort of the, the, the uh uh, civil rights and, and, and criminal justice warriors, you know, that, that we see that there's an awful lot of things that affect the poor. And it, the drug war is just one of them where fines and, and uh, you know, requirements um, put a burden on poor people. But beyond that, um, we've looked at, for example, the tax foreclosure crisis that's going on in some of our larger cities. And we, we believe that that's a, an abuse of government power. Do you think that the money uh, the state could save if you did uh, open the prison gates and allow a lot of these uh, minor drug offenders out into society, uh, the money you save could be used on like the roads? I mean, because that's an issue you're hearing a lot about from the major party candidates. Uh, are you guys, the libertarians, making an issue of road repair and infrastructure repair or not? Absolutely. In fact, uh, one of my recent appearances, I, I kind of challenged the uh, the other two major party candidates. Um, you know, they talk aspirationally about things they want to do, but they don't really have a how involved. Um, the public has said they don't want to pay more taxes to, to get some of these things done. They think there's a lot of waste in the system. I've identified the program, you know, Mich uh, the Pure Michigan program, to me, is an inappropriate use of government resources. And so... What I envision is uh, selling bonds and using the savings that we get from the savings in the strategic fund as well as uh, prisons. Much of that can be used to pay those bonds off. Uh, Governor Snyder has this $4.2 million infrastructure plan that he couldn't possibly get through his own legislature. Um, I envision something a little bit smaller, you know, taking the real high-priority items and bonding those things out paying for them over time, and I think that's a, a practical and sensible solution that can get it done with current resources. Bill Jelano sounds like uh, some practical ideas there that would really work if you get a chance to implement them, and uh, we'll have you back again, and good luck on your campaign between now and November 6th. Bill Jelano, Libertarian candidate for governor. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back with our final guest, Mark Grebner, making another appearance. Uh, he's a reprise from an earlier star turn on Michigan Talk Radio, The Political Insider. Mark Grebner, uh, thanks for joining us. 
and thanks for having me on. Yeah, Mark is with the uh, Lansing-based Practical Political Consulting, has been for a long time. I always have described him as Michigan's leading political list broker. I don't know whether he still believes that he is. He can tell us right now. But I'd like to ask him about ballot proposal wording and whether or not these three proposals that are going to be on the ballot on November 6th are all going to pass uh, in his estimation based on the polling that we've seen or whether they're going to pass regardless of the polling we've seen. And by the way, can polls really ascertain how people feel about ballot proposals? Do they do the questions themselves justice in the way they present them to survey respondents. So, Mark Rebner, what do you think about all this? Well, political polling works pretty well when we're trying to determine which candidate will win or which candidate is leading, but it doesn't work at all for proposals. The, the problem seems to be that, that when people respond to a question about a proposal, they're talking about the issue. They say how they feel about marijuana, say, or how they feel about gerrymandering. But when they vote, they're actually looking at the hundred or so words the state has printed on the ballot, and they're really responding to that. And they find things in it that they like or dislike, almost separate from the uh, uh, from the general atmospheric issue that kind of permeates the discussion. So instead of talking about how they feel about marijuana, they're thinking, 12 plants? Why would you let people grow 12 plants? You mean everybody's going to have 12 plants in their <laughs> front yard? And, and so people react to that, or they react to language that suggests that money will be spent in a particular cause, which isn't the issue itself, but it catches people's attention. And so when people vote on a ballot proposal, they end up with often a different conclusion than they come to when they're discussing the issue, say, with a pollster who has phoned them. So uh, the result of this is that sometimes political polls are off by 20, 30, and even 40 percentage points, at which point there's really no point doing a poll. The poll doesn't tell you anything. So, uh, for example... Uh, I, I, the gerrymandering proposal, proposal two, uh, has mixed poll results. Well, it's not going it to, it's not a mixed question. It turns out when people see the ballot language, they're overwhelmingly supportive of what's proposed. But when it's described to them over the phone, they're fairly neutral. They say it's, it's roughly a 50 50 break. Uh, so I don't think that telephone interviewing tells you much about how people will vote on a proposal, but it tells you a lot about their general attitude. I mean, if you ask them about the death penalty, you can get information about how people feel about the use of, you know, the government's power to put people to death, but it doesn't tell you how they're going to vote if we had such a thing on the ballot, because the, the people will look at it and they'll start picking out individual proposal or individual provisions that they like or dislike. Okay, let me ask you another question, uh, different angle on uh, polls, and that is stories that have come out in the last week or so uh, talking about how much trouble pollsters are having, whether they're automated polls or live person interview polls, as I understand it, reaching respondents. Um, they, they are having to make tens of thousands of calls 
just to get a, a large enough sample, and it's really minuscule, like in the low single-digit percentage of all the people they try to reach, to get a meaningful result on a poll question. Why is it becoming so much more difficult to come up with a substantial sample that's going to be uh, something that we can all trust? I think that we can put it in a much larger perspective. One of the things that technology and changes in American society have caused over the last 50 and 100 years is a shift of power into the hands of consumers. And so one of the shifts has been that 50 or 100 years ago, if the phone rang, it was a big event and you answered the telephone. Today, if the phone rings, you know, it's handled by the routines that are built into the phone, whether you're going to even hear a ringtone, and you look to see who it is, and if you don't recognize the number, you don't answer it, and so on. Uh, I mean, people don't... A hundred years ago, if there was one store in a little town, that's where you shopped. You didn't have any choice. You, you know, people had no transportation, no way to get to another store. Today, you've got a hundred choices, even in a little town. So what's happening is that the pollster used to be in a position that he could decide, I'm going to call these 500 people and find out their opinion in the election. And you could get 70% of the people you identified to actually answer your question. You'd call them back. Sometimes people even went to the door and knocked on the door and said, you haven't been answering our telephone calls. What, what's the problem? They actually did this back in the 60s. Okay. Well, today, we all know that you don't take calls because you don't pick up calls from, from uh, telemarketers or from your drunken nephew or, you know, the 10 other people you're trying not to answer calls from. But if it's your boss, you pick up the phone. That's what's happening to pollsters. They've changed from a world in which they ran things, like other commercial entities had the power over consumers, to a world where the consumer is really deciding what they want to do. So people don't generally want to answer political polls, and now the New York Times is doing its uh, national set of um, uh, 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 congressional polls in about 70 districts. And in the course of that, they have now placed roughly 2 million phone calls, 2 million phone calls to, to just poll 70 districts. In some districts, they're actually getting below a 1% response rate. The, the result of this is that the statistical and scientific basis of polling is being rapidly eroded. It's, uh, it, it, there, there is still a theory that uh, justifies the uh, methods, but the theory is becoming invalid. One of the dangers is that if, if there's any reason that one side wants to talk to pollsters or doesn't want to talk to pollsters, let's, let's say Fox News tomorrow, just they, one of the commentators says, don't, don't answer the polls, don't answer the polls. Just, if they call, just hang up on them. Well, suddenly the percentage of Republicans who answer a poll would drop by 20 or 30 percentage points, let's say, and it would look like a huge swing to the Democrats merely because of one commentator on Fox News. Yeah, that's so a good point. It's it's hard to see how polling can go much longer in its current mode. It's going to have to adjust to it the same way that retailers have had to adjust to the you know to the change in the retail world. Well, what do you think is the answer? What could pollsters do to change the methodology? Well, think about how Amazon gets pretty reliable information about how you feel about you know. Uh, uh, say, uh, a particular product, 
you know, a pillow or something. They offer you a small bonus for answering a question, or they allow anybody who's bought it to answer a survey right away. So if the if pollsters can work out arrangements to to tell people your your uh, opinions are important to us. We'd really like to, we we'd pay you a small premium if you'll just be part of a consumer panel for the next year. Say a contract with Amazon. Amazon has whatever it is, fifty million, a hundred million people who regularly buy. Well, if a thousand people in some congressional district, if they were asked by Amazon, you know, how do you rate these congressional candidates along with the pillows and the, the stovetop uh, uh, devices that that they're also rating? So, so I think that, that you, you need to actually uh, give people an incentive and you need to find a way to approach them that does not simply rely on them volunteering uh, in response to, a, to a, what amounts to a telemarketer. Thought-provoking responses from Mark Grebner on a very uh, iffy subject that a lot of people are confused, puzzled about. Uh, don't know what the future of polling is going to be like and whether polling today is accurate. We're going to be back in a minute with Mark Grebner on more questions that need to be answered. Stick with us. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We're back with one of Michigan's best-known political commentators over the years, Mark Grebner of Practical Political Consulting in Lansing. Mark Grebner, I want to ask you about the uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh hearings in Washington before the uh, U.S. Senate over the last uh, week or two. Um, and the result and the fallout and the speculation as to what the impact is going to be on voting in the November 6th general election nationwide, as well as obviously here in Michigan. And I'm just kind of curious, there's one thing that I've been reading about, and I'm just puzzled about it, and I'm wondering if you have any theories about it, and that is, I keep reading that uh, what the Kavanaugh hearings did was energize both major parties' bases, uh, Republicans and Democrats both got them excited, uh, fired up about getting out and voting on November 6th because the stakes are high. Uh, but one of the conclusions that I keep reading is that somehow this is going to help Republicans in a handful of key U.S. Senate races around the country. But strangely enough, it's going to help the Democrats in a handful of or more than a handful of U.S. House races around the country. Why the difference? Why would the Republicans benefit in Senate races and Democrats in House races and not vice versa or whatever? Well, the, 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 the difference is that the battlegrounds are very different. In the U.S. Senate, the Democrats already hold almost all the seats that are up this time, and so they're trying to hold on to all of these difficult seats and maybe even pick up two more. So the battleground states are very Republican areas that happen to be held by Democrats. I'm talking about North Dakota, West Virginia, Missouri, Indiana, and so on. And in those states, first place, the Democrats have to hold those. And then the, the Democrats are trying to pick up two more seats, say, in Tennessee and Arizona. 
Well, anything that makes the Republicans remember that they're Republicans makes it very difficult for a Democrat to win in North Dakota. There just aren't that many Democrats there. And Heidi Heitkamp certainly didn't win on the basis of the black vote in North Dakota or, or you know, the, uh, the liberal vote or the academic vote. I mean, the university towns and so forth. Six years so, ago when she was elected. I'm sorry? Six years ago when she was elected, she didn't win with those votes. And now this year she has to face them again and they're not there. They're not there. She needs to win the votes of a lot of Republicans. And right. so if, it, if, if, if an issue makes Republicans feel kind of feisty and Republican, right. she's in a lot of trouble. Well, the battleground for the U.S. House is in suburbia, and it's the very places that suburban women looked at, uh, at uh, Justice, now Kavanaugh, and recognized the frat boy that they didn't date and that they were appalled by or maybe were attracted to. 50 years ago. So there, you know, the Kavanaugh hearings mobilized Democratic uh, supporters and, and Democratic adherents. But it's it, the difference is that they're just completely different battlegrounds. I mean, it's very different to talk about the, the suburbs of Fargo and the suburbs of Philadelphia. Right. Yeah. I mean, in other words, it seems to me what, what you're saying is because the Democrats have such a terrible landscape for the Senate races this year, they got so many seats exposed, held by incumbents, which they've got to defend. Uh, whereas in the House races, we're really talking about the opposite. I mean, the Republicans in most cases probably have these seats and they're trying to hold on to them against the Democratic challenge. Right. And there is not a disproportionate number of of seats for one party or the other in the House races the way there is in the Senate. Right. If, if the Republicans all vote Republican, it's going to wipe out Heidi Heitkamp. But if the Democrats all vote for Democrats, it's going to help the Democrats pick off a bunch of Republicans who are holding suburban seats that you know are no longer really uh, easily held by Republicans. And so mobilizing the Democratic base in suburban Philadelphia or suburban Houston uh, improves the democratic uh, position. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you about another question and that is turnout. You made a prediction uh, about a month ago and Chris Thomas, the former state elections director did the same. He said he thinks there might be as many as 4 million Michiganders who vote on November 6th, which would be a record. You one upped him. You said you thought there might be as many as 4.2 million. A lot of the time in previous elections, we base our estimates of turnout in the general election on absentee votes, um, absentee ballot requests, and how many uh, ballots are being returned by voters to clerks uh, early on in the weeks leading up to an election. What have you seen so far this year? Does it look like the absentee ballot activity so far is on par to reach uh, maybe this 4 million, 4.2 million uh, turnout figure that you talked about? Or does it look more like, let's say, the last uh, gubernatorial election, which was 2014, which was not a great turnout year? Well, in the first place, I think I'd like to endorse uh, uh, Chris Thomas's number now. I'm, I'm retreating back toward his <laughs> 4 million. I think he's probably roughly right. I think I was too exuberant when I went to 4.2. Um, the absentee numbers are require some interpretation. There's no system for collecting the data statewide that is run by the state. Instead, it's each clerk puts in their data. 
And at this point, there's essentially no data at all from Genesee County. There's very little from Kent County. So that Grand Rapids, for example, doesn't even show up in the numbers. And there are other cities which are missing. And I, I think that this has to do with the issuance of ballots and the just the logistics of typing the data in and so on. Uh, so that the state isn't collecting the data itself. It's collecting it from each of the clerks. And where there's no data from the clerks, it shows up as zeros. Uh, it looks to me as if it, we're on a pretty fast pace for absentees, but maybe not a pace to get us to 4.2 million. But but four million or maybe a little less, that looks pretty plausible. We have 750,000 absentee ballot requests in right now, and that's, you know, with, with a handful of large cities and large townships missing completely from the data. Every day somebody catches up, some clerk gets online and puts in um, their, the missing data, and so the numbers are rising pretty rapidly. But here we are, what, 25 days out from the election, and, you know, three-quarters of a million ballots have already been mailed out with uh, another 50,000 ballots mailed each day. Uh, it looks like it's on track to be a pretty pretty robust turnout for a gubernatorial election. Let's say there are 4 million people who turn out on November 6th, or let's put it away, I shouldn't say turn out. I mean, the, let's say the total vote is 4 million. What uh, number would you assign would be absentee out of that. What percentage of that 4 million are going to be absentee votes? I guess about 27 or 28%. So about 1.1 million. Okay. Give or take a little bit. Uh, that's, we, we might be a little above that, a little bit below. Uh, a lot of the ballots that are being requested late are young people who are attending school somewhere. So, uh, you know, they're not people who have traditionally voted by absentee ballot in the past because they're typically only 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. So they haven't even been through an election cycle before. Uh, and, and when they finally get applications in and whether, whether they receive the ballots on time and mail them back on time is one of those great uh, developing mysteries. You know, we'll, we'll only find out at the end how many young people actually managed to get mobilized. But a lot of those young people are voting by mail. Has the percentage of absentee votes been going up gradually over the years? Has it plateaued at this point? What do you think? It, it hasn't plateaued. It's still rising by, let's say, one or two percentage points. So 25% to 27%, probably next time 29%. And uh, that's happening largely because the clerks are making it routine in more and more cities to mail out applications to a large list of people. And then once people get on that list, now it's just people over the age of 60, pretty much, who, who qualify automatically for voting absentee. But once people get on that list and vote absentee, they continue to vote absentee generally the rest of their lives. So as, as one clerk after another devotes the resources to get that system up and running, that's it's made available by the state, but it's not required for each municipality to use it. But as each, as each large township and city uh, gets online and does that, pretty much their voters start, their older voters start using increasingly uh, absentee ballots in order to vote. Okay, and we've that's got, really we, what it's we've got, it. we're running out of time. Let me, one last question, the 20 seconds. If Proposal 3 passes on November 6th, no reason absentee voting, 
What do you think would be the result in the next election, 2020, in terms of percentage of absentee turnout? Probably rise to 40 or 45 percent. We'll see, we'll see a dramatic shift toward voting by mail. Great, great answer. Okay, listen, you've been great, Mark Grebner. Uh, terrific answers. Uh, very interesting topic. Thank you very much for being our guest on The Political Insider, Mark Grebner of Practical Political Consulting. Thanks for having me on.